Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. We've talked a lot on this podcast about problems in New Mexico and solutions or efforts to combat those problems. Today, we're hosting a guest who, in many ways, has the ability to see a lot of these efforts through the criminal justice system, the state's top prosecutor. He's someone we've also hosted on this podcast before, but in his previous role as the Bernalillo County District Attorney, and now he is the New Mexico Attorney General. Raul Torres joins us again. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We thought it'd be a good time to have you back on the podcast because it has been a while, as we mentioned. You've also taken the role as now the state's top prosecutor since we last spoke. Just a bit of listener background. You were sworn in as the AG in January. So about two months here now on the job, two full months here on the job, entering your third month here. Prior to the AG role, you were the DA overseeing criminal prosecution for the state's biggest and busiest county, Bernalillo County. Born and raised in Albuquerque, you've worked as a federal prosecutor and advisor in the President Obama Department of Justice. But now we're here, 2023. You're New Mexico's AG. How are you feeling so far into this role? Well, I, you know, I, I love um, the the job of Attorney General. It's just, it's an extraordinary place for someone who I think really relishes the opportunity to, to get involved in not just criminal justice issues, but a lot of bigger policy areas and really the intersection of lots of different issues from the environment to consumer protection. Um, we're working right now on creating the first ever civil rights division inside the attorney general's office. And it's frankly really nice um, to not only be able to have an impact on on the debate around public safety and crime, but also to to start weighing in on some of the broader issues that are impacting you know the citizens of this state, but also just looking down the road into sort of those generational challenges that we've had. We've talked a lot in the past about trying to do more to protect uh, traumatized children, help traumatized children ways to really strengthen um, the the safety net and the legal protections that we have for New Mexican citizens. And so for somebody like me, one of the things that you, that probably wasn't in the bio is I, I was also an assistant attorney general and I worked for two different AGs in this state. I think I'm the first attorney general to have actually worked as a line assistant. And so I've I've seen what the job is both, you know, from the bottom to the very top. And um, I'm just really excited to, to lead the organization. Interesting. And for those who aren't familiar with the Office of the Attorney General, you guys handle a wide range of issues like you just touched on, everything from consumer protection, cybercrime, white collar crime, human trafficking, drugs, civil and criminal law. What's the biggest difference you think in this position versus, say, cases that your office was handling as the Bernalillo County District Attorney? You know, the pace and and the volume at the district attorney's office is extraordinarily um, challenging. And I know that District Attorney Bregman is settling into that role. The entire staff of this district attorney's office here in Bernalillo County cares deeply about this community. And I'm sure if you talk to him, 
one of the things that is is really hard for anyone to fathom without having worked in that position is just the scale of what we deal with every single day. The benefit of being in the attorney general's office is we don't face that kind of volume in terms of criminal referrals or the speed and pace at which we are forced to respond and adapt. And what that means is it gives us more time to lay out a, a, a long-term strategic vision about you know, what are the issues that we're going to highlight and prioritize, how we're going to build an office to sort of maximize our impact, and take a step back and really consider the, the, the real interconnectedness between lots of various policy areas and you know, how, how that office can really leverage change for the long term. And so I'm just enjoying the opportunity to take, frankly, a step back catch our breath and and really start honing in on the long-term generational challenges that we've got in front of us but it's a different it's a different world entirely you know the DA's office you get called in the middle of the night you get called on the weekends it's it's kind of a never-ending grind the attorney general's office just doesn't have that pace but it has a different layer of complexity to it which I'm really starting to appreciate and and frankly starting to enjoy the AG obviously I think, as you discussed, has a lot of latitude in what they can address, what they choose to address. And there have been predecessors to what we mentioned who've picked and choose what they've been involved in. So what do you see your role as? Do you see yourself more as a policy advocate, rolling up the sleeves, getting in the courtroom, being the AG as the prosecutorial authority in a courtroom, doing other work that agencies aren't? What do you see the role that you are in? Well, every attorney general has a foundational level of affirmative responsibilities, right? So we um, defend state agencies and boards and commissions when they are subject to a lawsuit. And so that's something that is always part of the, the job of the attorney general. We're asked to offer legal opinions, and I'm, I'm expected to render legal opinions about unresolved questions of the law. Um, I think one of the, ironically, what will probably surprise, you know, many of your listeners is the fact that I, I intend to do more to lift up and build out the civil litigation side of the, of the agency. I think, uh, my immediate predecessor was probably a little more focused on building out, um, the capacity of the office to really engage in lots of prosecution. But, you know, as a former DA, what I can tell you is that the overwhelming share of criminal prosecutions can and should be driven by the 14 elected district attorneys from across the state. Mm. And so to a certain extent, um, I will be refocusing our attention at the attorney general's office on issues that can only really be effectively handled there. And what that means is, is more assertive representation on things like consumer protection, okay. um, antitrust violations. There's been, uh, you know, very recently the Department of Justice has initiated the largest antitrust lawsuit against a tech company since they did that against Microsoft nearly 20 years ago. And eight states in this country uh, joined with the Department of Justice in filing that action. I got up very early, which is sort of my habit. I try to wake up before, you know, the sun's up and before my kids are up. And so it gives me a chance to read. And I'm reading about this case in the Wall Street Journal, and I'm sending notes to my chief of staff and saying, I want to meet with the 
antitrust division when I get into the office this morning. And when I get into the office, he, he lets me know well, we, don't, we don't have an antitrust division. Mm. So that's an example of, right. you know, the kinds of things that my colleagues as attorneys general across the state are engaged in, across the country are engaged in. The AG in Colorado is a former antitrust lawyer from the Department of Justice. He has a very active antitrust division. We don't have any antitrust division. And so that's an example of the kind of thing that I want to see the attorney general's office really bring back and, and, and try to develop. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, the, the biggest objective that I have, at least for this session, is the creation and establishment of this new civil rights division. That's something that about half of the AGs in this country have an established civil rights division and about 13 or so have really, really active offices. The state of California has had an active civil rights division since I believe 1972 or something like that. It's 2023 and I'm up in the legislature making the case for why we should be doing something that California has been doing for, for about 50 years, right? So those are a couple of examples of the types of things that New Mexicans can expect out of the attorney general's office that they probably haven't seen as much of in the past. What would an active civil rights division look like exactly? If you can give us like sort of a broad level. Yeah. So, well, what I, what I can tell you is that as a former federal prosecutor, the, the sort of the crown jewel of the Department of Justice isn't the criminal division. It's, it's actually the civil rights division. It's created in 1957 with the passage of the first Civil Rights Act. It was in its early iterations was really focused on school desegregation, public accommodations, knocking down uh, barriers to equal access for racially um, oppressed and discriminated against minority groups, discrimination based on gender, national origin, ethnicity. That's evolved over time to encompass such things as, as equal opportunity and access for children with disabilities. And I think you know, the most important focal point that we will have for the new division is the defense of children and the securing of children's civil rights. We have quite obviously a, a, a dysfunctional agency in CYFD. We continue to see a failure on the part of that agency to protect children in the most basic ways. The number one priority of that department is protecting children and improving their well-being. That is not what is occurring in the state of New Mexico in the way that either the secretary or I want. And the Civil Rights Division, once created, will have the opportunity to step in mm. and advocate on behalf of, frankly, what I think are the most vulnerable members of our community. Those are disadvantaged children from dangerous environments, from homes and families that have a history of abuse or drug addiction or things like that. And those children, those citizens are relying on government to protect them. This new civil rights division will have more power um, than any agency thus far to hold CYFD accountable, but it isn't just CYFD. We have school districts that have an extraordinarily high rate of uh, discipline against Native American students. We have police departments that unfortunately have a historical pattern of excessive force. We have local county jails and state prisons that have a track record of failing to protect and defend 
people in their custody. All of those groups are the kinds of groups that will be at the forefront of the work of the Civil Rights Division. Hmm. That is fascinating. And I also wanted to ask, keeping in mind, obviously, the, the, the criminal side of things, too. You still have criminal prosecutors, and I imagine those don't necessarily go away, so to speak, even with the creation of new new units and whatnot, right? It's Oh, yeah. No, no, the criminal, and, and, you know, I came out of the criminal division, the special prosecutions division in the AG's office. What that division will um, continue to do is engage in active investigations and prosecutions of people involving uh, the child's child solicitation online, child pornography, human trafficking. Um, we are very much engaged in the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and children. Um, and so we are going to be actively involved in that. I think from a, a, a criminal prosecution lens, what you have to bear in mind is, you know, I came from an agency that had over a hundred prosecutors, give or take. And I'm now leading an, an agency that has statewide jurisdiction and has fewer than a dozen, right? So we have to pick and choose. And what we really are going to be focused on are complex, organized crime, right? Like the, the, the likes of which that you're seeing impacting um, big, big retail organizations and even mom and pop um, businesses here in the metro area. We've got a lot of organized criminal activity that is focused on you know, not just basic shoplifting, but actually going in, targeting big box retailers, fencing those things online, that's having a huge impact. So that's going to be a priority for us. But it's it's really those organizational and cross-jurisdictional types cases that we're going to be focused on. Because like I said, we don't have the the resources of my old office in terms of turning out thousands of cases the way we used to. This is more about taking on big strategic targets and having a big impact in that way, but also trying to offer, um, you know, a broader legal and constitutional guidance to some of the policy that's being developed up in the legislature. So we, we sort of play that role of both a policy shop and a hands-on uh, criminal prosecution um, agency that that has the the opportunity to just move across the state and across different issue areas. You mentioned retail crime, obviously, in there, and that was going to be the question that I had for you was whether or not the work would continue. It sounds like very much so. But to ask you a little bit further to that point, mm -hmm. and, and just for those who don't know, retail crime, in short, people who are not petty thieves, but sort of using force, stealing large quantities, and as you had mentioned, fencing that stuff, selling that stuff online, making a profit to fuel other crimes. So do you envision the work that your predecessor, uh, two-term Democrat Hector Balderas, he essentially started that from what we could tell from the outside. Do you envision doing anything different from what he had going? Well, I think um, we're going to be building out the the partnerships that, that were established. Um, you know, we had a group at the DA's office that was focused on the same issues. And, and we worked closely with some of the big retailers, Lowe's, Home Depot, and others. They actually have a pretty sophisticated internal security and law enforcement, quasi-law enforcement sort of capacity. I think one of the things that we will be looking to do is to bring the technological element that we were really, really focused on at the DA's office and elevate it and also refocus it on that. And And what I mean by that is we right now have the ability, if we 
integrate and synthesize data from various police departments across the state to pick up patterns of criminal activity, organized criminal activity, that will enable our law enforcement partners to actually have a much more proactive impact. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have an organized um, group, an organized criminal organization that is engaged in widespread retail theft. What they're doing is they're targeting not in just one county. They're going from a Lowe's in Bernalillo County. They may hit um, a business down in Las Lunas. In Valencia County, they may then do something in Torrance County and then may move back to Sandoval County. Well, all they're doing is the same activity. They don't care what county they're in, but what county they commit those crimes in has a huge impact for law enforcement, meaning there could be something in a police report in Sandoval County that would help identify a suspect or enable a detective to to make a connection between this car or this gun or this person, but law enforcement is largely blind to what happens outside of their county. And so what we are able to do as a statewide law enforcement organization is to synthesize all of that data and information in real time and then return it and deliver it back to frontline detectives and police officers so that they can start working collaboratively and with real precision because that's that's what we need to do. We've We've never really made the kind of investment in the information and technological infrastructure that sits behind law enforcement. And that's a role that I think we'll be playing in a very active way. The other thing that we're doing, um, we had a great meeting with the U.S. Attorney's Office and the ATF. We've put a proposal together to create what are called crime gun intelligence centers. And what that does is it takes the technology that's currently used by the ATF that traces gun casings that are associated Uh, with various crime scenes, and we can actually match different casings recovered from different scenes and try to organize that in such a way we develop leads and give those back to law enforcement. That's the Solomon Pena case, to a large extent, was actually solved in part by making those casing connections from one crime scene to the next. We are following breaking news tonight. APD arrested a former legislative candidate and convicted felon for allegedly paying four other men to shoot at the homes of two county commissioners and two state legislators. The problem is that only happens in Bernalillo County. Why? Because ATF has a machine here. There isn't one in Roswell. We need more Nibin. There isn't, right. There's no There's no Nibin machine in Chavez County. There's no Nibin machine in, in McKinley. We need to start building out statewide network so that we can start seeing where all those crime guns are being used, where they're coming from, how they're moving through the society, and more importantly, how law enforcement can kind of get in front of the curve. We've talked a lot on this podcast about just how everything kind of feels connected in a way including our crime problem. So going back to retail crime real quick, in the context of retail crime, one example of maybe a hard hit location is the Walmart in Albuquerque on San Mateo near Central. It's right on the edge of the city's international district. Our colleague Ann Perrette actually followed agents with the former AG's office doing a sting at that location last year. We now know that store is closing for good on March 10th. The Walmart on San Mateo near Central, situated near some of Albuquerque's lower income neighborhoods, announced today it will be part of closures happening across the country. A Walmart spokesperson told us in part that the store, quote, did not meet our financial expectations. 
They didn't outright say that retail crime was a problem, but I think from anyone who lives in shops in that area, they know that it is. I think this is something the former AG spoke about losing retailers and shopping centers to this issue of crime. How do you see this Walmart's closure? Can you speak about that issue or does it worry you that we might be losing businesses to these types of issues in our community and more crime potentially that comes around big vacant buildings? Yeah, the closure of of the Walmart at that location is very much a signal event for the community. And it's also a signal event for other retailers. I mean, we, we, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that retailers and real estate developers and people who are looking either to expand their footprint or move from one community to the next are very much aware of what um, a company like Walmart does. And when they you know, pull up stakes and move out of that community. It should be a it should be a wake up call to every member of of the community, the leader, the political leaders in the community, and and frankly, to members of the legislature and to the governor about the the seriousness of the challenges that we're facing. I think one of the frustrations that I have continue to have, and frankly, I had for many years as district attorney is that we would go into the legislature and we would, rather than addressing various solutions to the problem, we couldn't even get people to understand or even admit that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. And look, there's there's no problem in the world that you can solve if you don't recognize it first and foremost as a problem that needs to be addressed. And for anyone who thinks that the crime and public safety issue was not a primary component of Walmart's decision is just missing the point entirely. And I, th- and I frankly think members of the legislature outside of the city and frankly, some of those inside of the city would be well served by going on a ride along, mm-hmm. by going out with agents, by going out with, with members of law enforcement in the hardest hit areas of our community so you can understand the depth of what we're dealing with, the frustration that business leaders have. And um, if we do not do more to get a handle on it, we will be in a position where business consequences, business decisions will be impacted. It will impact our, our ability to generate revenue, tax base, to support public safety. And you can end up in a situation where you're spiraling in the wrong direction. I want to shift to the legislative session. You mentioned it just briefly there. Uh, We know in the recent years, there's been a push to get more done to address crime. We've seen you there in committee hearings, uh, given an earful to the legislators. Exactly. Some of the ideas that have been proposed are things like a rebuttable presumption bill or a statute that would presume automatically that detention should happen for people who are accused of certain crimes and the onus would be on the defense attorney to say why they shouldn't be held in jail through trial. Um, There's also been retail crime bills, crimes centered on penalties for fentanyl position. We're almost through the session. Wanted to ask you, which bills do you see are most important? And can you maybe give us some background on those? Well, look, I've obviously been a, a strong proponent and continue to be a strong proponent for the adoption of rebuttable presumptions of detention for a limited class of highly dangerous and violent felons, people that use firearms, people that commit violent offenses who have a history of not complying with conditions of release. 
Unfortunately, the legislature once again does not appear ready to to take that potential solution up and and adopt it. And and look, I I have to respect the fact that I'm not a member of the legislature, right? And then that's in their purview. What I would say and what I have always said is if people don't like the solution that has been in effect in federal courts since the middle 80s, fine. Then come up with your own solution. But what I continue to find unacceptable is this idea of, well, we don't like rebuttable presumptions. So we're just not going to do anything, right? And if you talk to almost anyone on the street of, of, on the streets of this community, the, the things that they agree on more than anything else, Republican, Democrat, old, young, Hispanic, Anglo, no matter where they come from, what they're doing, they are fed up with the crime. And they are fed up with watching people with lengthy criminal records be placed back into the community. And if you don't do that, if you don't fix that issue, none of the rest of, of what is going on with regard to public safety in the legislatures really, in my, in my view, is going to make a difference. There are other things that can and should be done. But first and foremost, I mean, here's a, here's a wild idea. If you're living in a community that is rocked by gun crime, why don't you take the people who are arrested for gun crime and keep them in jail? I mean, it's, this is not splitting atoms. This is very basic stuff. And somehow we have gotten ourselves into a situation where we were promised a policy outcome. It, is, it has been, in my judgment, an absolute unmitigated disaster. And for political reasons, people are unwilling and unable to pull back from that. And like I said, if the solution isn't rebuttable presumptions, fine. What I don't find acceptable is some notion that everything is okay or that it's okay to recognize that there's a problem, but I have no solution to offer. That's not acceptable. And I don't think that's what the public is looking for. Along those lines, is there anything particular that you've been satisfied or disappointed with so far this session? Well, I, th- I, I think you can, you can probably tell from my general reaction to, you know, the issue of pretrial detention. I have not seen anything at the legislature that, in my judgment, that is going to have a significant impact on improving public safety. Anything. Which is disappointing. Uh, look, I, we're, we're having big, and I say this all the time, I say it to business communities or business leaders. You can have a debate about the, the gross receipts tax or, or tax pyramiding or, you know, all of these other issues. If people don't think this is a safe community, if businesses don't feel safe in this community, nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else, Right. If we can get the crime situation under control, then we can go back to, you know, as you guys say, regular programming and we'll have a debate about the size of the safety net or what the right tax level is. When we are facing the kind of crisis that has been ongoing for this long with no significant action, you know, the decision's pretty straightforward for corporations like Walmart and others. They will go to communities where their employees are safe, where their customers are safe, where they're not losing millions to organized retail theft because they will look for communities that have a handle on public safety. And 
what continues to disappoint me is the absence of of real focused agenda on that issue. And, you know, it's at some point, you know, the voters in this state are probably going to have enough and they're going to start really pressing people for more deliberate answers on those questions. What is one bill that you see needs to pass on those lines? Well, look, I, again, I think we should have rebuttable presumptions of detention. If you're accused of murder, if you're accused of brandishing a weapon and it's your second or third felony, if you're caught with a firearm and accused of aggravated battery, if you're accused of a violent sexual assault after a history of violent sexual assaults, you should stay in jail. I don't think that's a controversial position. And I think, I don't think anyone can look at what we've done with the jail, which again, which still sits at half its capacity of what it used to be and the rampant crime in the community and, and in any credible way say that those two things are unconnected. Of course they're connected. We emptied the jails. We don't supervise people out on the streets. We don't provide meaningful wraparound comprehensive services. We don't monitor where these people are. And the outcome is fairly predictable. I think that detention in the first 30 to 60 days after a crime is committed is actually way more important to immediate public safety than tacking on years to a sentence on the back end. Because what happens is you leave these people in the community and you're sending a signal that there isn't much of a response that's being taken. The other thing, and this isn't really at the legislative level, but it's at the local level, we need more police officers. We have to have for a system that is currently structured the way it's structured in a community that's dealing with what it's dealing with, you are probably two to 300 police officers short. And, and that needs to, needs to change as well. But, but police recruiting is incredibly challenging these days. Mm -hmm. A little more broadly now, we know the AG position is for at least a four-year term. Now that you're in office, What's your goal, maybe, if you could focus on like just this first year as attorney general? My goal for the first year is to recenter the agency around some some core responsibilities that I just don't think have um, had enough attention. Consumer protection, environmental protection, and civil rights are going to be the, the the big issues. And so I'm focused on building out the budget that we need and the resources that we need to try and uh, recruit and retain qualified litigators, reorienting the, not just the office, but the public's understanding of what it is we're capable of doing. And, and then going out around the country to look at what other AG's offices are doing in terms of being innovative and creative in how they go about protecting people. And so I, I want the agency to be more present, to be more active, and to be a place where when someone is in trouble and they need help, they, they, even if this isn't the best place to come and ask for help, they should know that we're always going to be there. We're always going to answer the phone. We're always going to, if we can't do something for them, we'll get them connected to the right resource. And that's just going to take a lot of energy and effort. And so I'm looking forward to that. 
last question I had for you. I know you did bring some litigators, some people with you from the DA's office. I did. Can you share with us, maybe as the AG's office at full staff? Secondly, I just wanted to ask you about the office you vacated. Sam Bregman, former longtime defense attorney, is now heading up the Bernalillo County DA's office. That was a governor appointment. Have you heard about how they're doing since you left? I've had a number of conversations with uh, District Attorney Bregman and have told him, you know, if we can offer assistance in any way, please let us know. We we are, you know, actively working with them on a number of cases. The the recent conviction that was had in the killing of those two young men, two, two uh, juveniles out on the West Side, we had um, assigned an assistant. Attorney General, who was formerly in the office and came over with me, and she said, well, we need to stay involved and, and, and make sure that trial gets done. The three men on trial accused of torturing and killing two teenage boys have been found guilty of first-degree murder. The two teens were found buried in a shallow graves back in 2018. We, we're going to continue to collaborate and work with them. I know he's got a challenge in terms of staffing up, and, and we've got the same thing that we've got to deal with. And, I, and, and one thing I will tell you that is true. It's certainly, we don't face the same kind of headwinds that police leaders have or police departments have, but it's incredibly challenging to recruit prosecutors anymore. Culturally, things have shifted pretty dramatically in terms of this being a profession that people wanted to to pursue and go into. And so we got to think about how we offer training and support and assistance to the people on the front lines of this work because it's incredibly, incredibly important. And what I always sort of try to remind people is prosecutors are one of those things in society that you hope you will never, ever need in terms of stepping in to help your family if you are a victim or one of your members of your family is a victim. But if you do, you want to make sure that you. it's sort of like an emergency room doctor, right? Right. You don't want to ever see an emergency room doctor, but if you see one, you want to make sure they have everything they need and they're highly, highly trained and ready to go. And we can just do more as a society to, to give them training and resources and support so that they can do that job more effectively. Is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe we didn't ask you directly about? Well, I think everyone should really keep a close eye on the agency and and what we are able to do if we get the funding and we get the authority that we are asking for you know we've we are looking for several million dollars on top of having a number of vacancies all, almost all of those will be focused on building out the affirmative litigation side of what we do. And my goal is to make sure that everyone in this state knows that this agency is a place where big things are going to happen and they can look to us to step in and help them whenever they're in need. We appreciate you joining us here. Yeah. Sounds like you got a, um, a busy year ahead of you building out new facets of this office. So good luck to you. And we appreciate you joining us here. You bet. I thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. Again, many thanks to Attorney General Raul Torres for stopping by the KRQE studios and recording this week's episode. We will, I think, eagerly await the results of his new divisions of the Attorney General's office that'll be created over the next year. And it sounds very interesting. 
Yeah, and I was I was telling Chris after that recording, when he mentioned the Civil Rights Division, I don't know about you guys, but my mind did not immediately go to like the children of New Mexico and CYFD. So certainly be interesting and something we will be sure to keep an eye on. In the meantime, you can always reach out to us with your story ideas or feedback. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhart at KRQE.com via email and GBurkNM on social media. I'm at Chris McKee TV and also Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. Thanks for listening.